0: that the gospel is a declaration of God's divine grace, that it is his sovereign power to save people, not based on our works, but by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's the essence of the gospel. And he says if you preach another version of this, you should be cursed, you should be damned by God. So this is something that Paul takes very seriously. And yet Paul, who defends the absolute pure and free grace of Jesus Christ also gives commands. He also says, if you're a Christian, you need to do this. So the free and pure grace of the gospel is not against doing good works. Our good works don't earn salvation, but they are the evidence of salvation. They are the evidence of what our series is about, the fruit of the Spirit. Every Christian has dwelling in them the Holy Spirit, God himself. And the evidence of your salvation is that you will progressively start to manifest these characteristics in your life. And there's a list of these characteristics in Galatians 5. Now, it's not an exhaustive list, but it is sort of Paul saying, this is the gist of it. If you're, if you're a Christian, your life is going to be marked by these qualities. Now, that might be kind of strange because sometimes we think, well, are you telling me to be a good Christian? Isn't like, there's no, there's no good Christians, just forgiven Christians, right? And, and I get, I mean, that's, again, that's true, but it's not the full truth, right? We are commanded to be good, to manifest goodness in the world. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit that we're expected to bear. So that's, that's the fruit we're going to look at today, the fruit of goodness. God calls us to do good. Now one of the things that we have trouble with is is defining what we mean by doing good. If you think about how we use the this description of good like you know my my coworker he's a good guy. My neighbor, they're, you know, they're good people. What do we mean by that? Well, oftentimes we mean they're non-offensive, we get along with them, don't argue about things. Right? It, it's it's sort of a, a a kind of passive idea of goodness. But if that were the case, then the apostles and the prophets would not be good guys. And Jesus Christ would not be considered good by that definition. Because Jesus himself was challenging. I mean no I mean he he was healing sick people, he was, you know, creating fish and crackers for everybody to eat. He's healing people, he's caring for people, he's caring for the poor, for prostitutes, for widows, all these things. And he was still hated. And by the end of his life, he had a very, very small group of disciples. So being good doesn't mean that everybody likes you, or being good doesn't mean that you're never offensive. Because when we look at the biblical model, being good is, is doing what God calls you to, no matter the cost to yourself. It is is doing what is righteous, what is just, what is true. Good is costly. G- goodness has a backbone. It means something. It costs something. That's the vision of goodness that we have in the New Testament. But when we talk about the spirit dwelling in us and giving us power to do this good, we're not ta- it's not polite niceties. This is, this is power from God to live a life care and benevolence toward others. Now, when, if we just think about that as some kind of abstract principle, like, oh, I've got to do good. We just leave it floating in the air. We can exempt ourselves from it. It's just this lofty opinion, this lofty idea. But Paul doesn't let us off the hook. He says, no, when I, when I mean good, I'm, I, I'm talking about some practical things about real people, right? That's when it gets hairy. That's when, when it actually becomes actual prescriptive things we need to do that's when we feel the rebellion well up in us. But why does Paul get specific? Because he doesn't. He, he wants us, when we hear the word of God and these specific commands of what to do, he forces a choice upon us. We'll either obey or we won't. We'll either obey or we won't. So he is forcing the issue for us. So there are three things that I think Paul shows us. How do, how do we be proactive in doing good? What is goodness with a backbone? And what, and what is Paul trying to provoke us to consider in our lives? I think there's, there's three things. He wants us first to pursue practices. To pursue practices. The second thing is he wants us to pursue perseverance. And the final P is priorities. To pursue priorities. We'll unpack each of these in sequence, let's consider the ways in which we're to pursue practices. How, how goodness and doing good is something that we practice. It's not something that just wells up in us at a spontaneous moment, but it's a discipline and a habit and a way of life. If you look at the first, if you look at uh, Galatians 6 6 through 7, Paul opens up with this stark phrase Do not be deceived. Like, get this right. Get this straight in your mind. This is the way that the world works. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So Paul is taking sort of this common sense idea that everybody knows, that your actions have consequences. And he's taking that and he's applying it to our spiritual lives, the spiritual consequences of spiritual actions, And he says, this is the way the world works. How you live your life matters. And there are consequences. And that there are two directions that you're going in your life. You're either sowing to the flesh, which will reap corruption, or you're sowing to the spirit, which will reap eternal life. Now, when you think about eternal life, one of the problems we have is we we, we, we think about eternal life as sort of a, a, a ticket, like Jesus gives us a ticket to go to this place called heaven where we live forever, no one's sick, and we get everything we want. Well, what that does is it makes Jesus a means to an end. But what makes heaven, what makes the new heavens and new earth glorious? What makes our eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God glorious? God is there, and we're with him. John 17, 3, what does Jesus say eternal life is? It's to know the one who was sent to us, Jesus Christ, and to know the one who sent him, the Father, And to know the spirit who is the bond of fellowship. It is life with the triune God. That is the essence of eternal life. What do we get in eternal life? We we get Jesus. We get the Father. We get the spirit. We get God. And so the question is, are you becoming the kind of person that would want that forever? So who we are matters. And how we sow in our practices of our lives matters. You can no more say that you want eternal life and your sin than you could say, I want to be a bachelor and be married. It doesn't make any sense. Because by definition, to be married is to no longer be a bachelor. And to be in Christ, to be under the lordship of Christ, is by definition to no longer be under the lordship and the mastery of sin. And so when we talk about sowing, it's a consideration of, how are we living our daily lives? Are we becoming the kinds of people who love God, who trust him, who follow him? Or are we daily becoming people who are furthering our rebellion? And, and, and the, it's, it's easy to sow to the flesh. Just do nothing, right? Just do nothing. But to sow to the spirit, I mean, what does Romans say? What does Paul say being led by the spirit is? It's putting to death the deeds of the flesh, daily, in the daily grind of life, with the actual relationships of people around us. That's where where the fruit of goodness comes. By that daily grind of putting to death sin, and by the power of God, living righteously. And this idea of practices is, is, I mean, this is in the tradition of the church. People have known this for thousands of years. That the way that we can be good or courageous or loving in the moments when it counts comes as a reaping of all the daily habits of goodness and caring for others and loving one another that happens in the little moments throughout our lives. Think about jazz players, jazz musicians. You know, they can improvise. They can create these amazing melodies out of thin air. How do they do that? They practice scales every day for years, so that at the moment when they perform, those scales are so internalized that they can improvise, that when they're called upon, they can create these beautiful melodies. Christianity's is the same way. How, how, do you, how do you be courageous in the moments when it counts? How do you be good in the moments when it counts? You sow it daily in the daily practices of your life and the decisions that you make and the way that we care and pray for and gather together and, and think about the word together and practice the Christian life. And again, Paul gets practical. And this is a really interesting, maybe even slightly self-serving example he gives, but it's in the Bible. It's there, right? What is one way that you can sow to the Spirit? He says in verse 6, the one who has taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I don't think pastors should get rich off of the church. I, I drive a 98 4Runner. It's got 250,000 miles on it. I'm good. I'm content. I love it. I'll drive it to the ground. Okay, I'm not this, this is not a but 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 there's a principle here. Right? Why? Think about what money is. Money is a tool that we use to express what is valuable. And so when he says share all good things and he's primarily talking about your resources and your and your money, he's saying show the value is the, is the preaching of the word of God, the teaching of the word of God, is that valuable to you? Is that something worth investing? Is that, is that something that, that should be something that we hold in high esteem? And it is. That's a, that's a practice of being generous. Generous to the church. Supporting the work of the teaching of the word of God. And there's a couple things that are assumed by this. Don't miss the subtext. What, is this, what does this assume? That You are submitting yourself to the teaching of the Word of God. Let the one who is taught. It's it's assuming that you have a teachable spirit and that there are people who are considered those who teach you. So there's this idea that you you belong to a local body, that that you have submitted yourself to pastor, teachers, and elders whose task is to disciple you in the Word of God, to teach you the Word of God. That's assumed in the New Testament. Notice he doesn't say share all things with your favorite podcaster. Christian podcast or, or with your you know your favorite devotional author those are great but that's not supposed to be the main source of teaching who has god gifted the pastors and the teachers and the shepherds to build you up in the faith the local elders of your local church so do we value that do we value the local church do we value the instruction of the word of God? Are we willing to share all good things? Is that a part of our lives? And even beyond that, is, is the goodness of the word of God something that you are sowing into your life? I mean, we've got a bunch of Bible studies that are going to start in the fall. You can gather with believers. You can sit with people who are older than you, who have been walking with the Lord longer, and they can teach you how to understand the word, how to apply it in your life but don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't think that we can neglect the word of God. Don't think that we can neglect the gathering of the church. Don't think that we can neglect being under pastors and hearing the word of God. Don't think we can neglect it and just be fine. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. But what a great promise. What a great promise. You will reap eternal life. God is, nothing is done in vain. God is going to work in you through the means that he has ordained. So we got to be proactive in our practices. But not just on our practices, but we have to be proactive in our perseverance. Because it's difficult. This isn't a magical thing, right? The Christian life and the Christian growth and growing in goodness is a, is a very long and painful process. And that's why we're called not to give up on doing good. Look at verse 10, or verse 9, I'm sorry. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if, what? If we do not give up. Now, why why does Paul say, don't get discouraged, don't grow weary, don't give up? Because he knows we are all tempted to do that. He knows that in the weakness of being a human being, We're going to feel that. And so he's encouraging us. Hey, I know that this is a common struggle for all of us, and I want to encourage you, don't give up. Why? Because it's not in vain. In due season, you will reap. But think about that imagery a farmer planting his crops. He's not going to immediately see the fruit of it. He's got to wait through the seasons. So it's this long-suffering this patient faithfulness of waking up at 5 a.m. and plowing the fields and watering them and seeding and all the other farming things. I'm not sure. I've exhausted my knowledge of farming at this point. <laughs> but all of these things, these are required. But it's an also an act of faith, of going, I don't see anything budding now, but I trust the promise of God that he will bring these to fruition. And, and in the meantime, I, I, I don't want to give up. Keep plowing. Keep going. But notice, don't miss this. He says, if we do not give up, there's a condition. And this is something that we we have to grapple with. I mean, this is a command. You need to keep going. So it's false to say that it doesn't matter either way, God's going to do what he's going to do. No, our choices matter. Think about Philippians 2.13. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you need to do something, but when you're doing it, it is God who's empowering your will to do it and even the work that you're doing. So our action and God's sovereignty and it, there's a mystery to it, but they work together. They're in harmony with one another. And Paul's not trying to be lofty about this. Again, he's going, look, I'm not going to explain all the intricacies. Just know this, you need to keep going. You will not see this fruit unless you keep trucking along, unless you keep going. That's why it's so important that we encourage one another in this. Sometimes, uh, you know, when, when you um, think about this, when you think about sports teams, okay, and you think about coaches, one of the things I hear them say all the time is this, finish. You've got to finish. You've got to play 60 minutes. You've got to finish. Why? Because you can have a good half, but if you don't have a full game of good performance, you're going to lose. And it's not going to matter. You don't get points for a good half. You've got to finish if you want to see the fruit of victory. And you look through the Bible. I mean, what does Paul say? I mean, Paul is all about the security we have in Christ. And at the same time, he goes, man, I beat my body into submission. I make it my slave. And I, I lay aside everything so that I can pursue the calling of Jesus Christ. So that by any means possible, I can achieve the resurrection from the dead. Paul realizes there's a call to perseverance. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't give up in doing good. And there's so many reasons why we want to give up. I mean, uh, you think about we w- we often talk about how divisive our age is. Politically and socially and all these things. We're so divisive. And that's true. And, and And you can get cynical. You can feel beat down. But we need to have perspective. I mean, in the history of the world, it's been pretty much more divisive than not, would you agree? And even in the history of the church, there's been division. And think about Paul's situation here. There's a faction in the church preaching a false gospel, and he's got to straighten it out. And people are slandering him. People are questioning his credentials as an apostle. I mean, Galatians is an apologetic for Paul's ministry so that he can clarify what it means to be a Christian. I mean, he's dealing with major issues and in the midst of that he says look i know it's divisive i know we've got all these people gathered together this new thing called the church we've only been around for a little bit don't give up god's faithful don't give up don't stop doing good don't stop preaching the gospel don't stop caring for each other don't stop praying for each other i know it's difficult but we're not going to see the fruit if we just give up halfway It was that call perseverance. And there's another way that we can get discouraged, want to give up. Not just when we look at the world around us, but when we consider our own lives. You're kind of like, man, my growth is uh, pretty slow right now. And we get discouraged. I'm like, man, I'm praying, I'm, I'm trying to be in the Word, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do all the things, and it's just still difficult. And that's why, again, the word encourages us. Hey, I, I get it. But just keep going. Keep going. In due season, you will reap. I love in Colossians chapter 2, Paul has this great phrase. He says that your life is hidden in Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. What does that mean? It means that who you are in all of your glory, in all of, your, in, in all of what you will one day be when Christ returns, is not yet seen. That the person God is molding you to be is not yet a reality. It's hidden with Christ until he returns. But it's secure. God will bring you to the end. He will mold you. That there is hope of transformation for you. And you see it by faith. And you look around and you see it by faith in other people. You want to do good to people and you're like, man, these people are terrible. Or like, these people are annoying or whatever. I'm annoying and I'm, and all this stuff. And you get discouraged and you go, wait a minute, but... All of our lives are hidden with christ we're not one day what we one day will be and that should give us hope okay we can keep going we can keep going we can encourage each other are you doing that are you encouraging people you know what are you praying with people are you sharing the word with people remembering the promises of god are you telling hey you know i get it raising little kids is tough but your work isn't in vain god is with you god's faithful Maybe it's a hard thing in your marriage, and it's like, look, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep pursuing Christ. It might take time, but don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep doing good. So we practice goodness, persevere in it, but we also need to prioritize goodness. And this one, I think, is really key. Listen to verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sometimes we can get, when we hear a call to do good, it can feel overwhelming. I mean, if you really consider all the needs in the world, you can feel overwhelmed. And what happens is we go, oh, there's so many needs, there's so many causes, there's so many problems in the world. I've got to care about all of them. I'm overwhelmed, and what ends up happening? We do nothing. We just shut down. That's why Paul is so helpful in giving us categories and priorities. Notice the categories he gives us in this verse. There's everyone, and what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to, as you get the opportunity, help anyone in need. Right? As they come along in your life, as you're out in the world, as you see needs, fill them. But then he says there's another level of priority, but especially to the What? household of God we need to have priorities I mean we can't I mean think about what making a sacrifice is most of us are not making sacrifices between a terrible thing and a good thing it's between good things and the greater things the things that are important versus the things that are of the highest importance And so ordering our lives properly is what Paul is helping us do. Yes, help those who are in need as you come along, but but especially the household of faith. And in other passages of Scripture, Paul says, especially your own family. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, who's your closest neighbor? Your family, right? Or your roommates? And then your local church, right? I mean, these are the neighbors in flesh and blood that we're called to love. when we just sort of think we, we, we want to do a generic good for generic people, we end up flattening everything. There was, a, there was an author, he, he, he made this observation that, that to love is to choose between two things. If you just love everything in general, what happens? If you want to do good to everyone in general, you end up being a slave to whatever is the newest trend, whatever is the newest thing. Or you think about, in our age, oftentimes, the status of victim can be weaponized. Anyone can claim it, and then we actually lose sight of the real victims and people who need help. Consider in the Bible, what are the people that, that the New Testament and, and Christ himself teaches us to focus on? The widow, the orphan, and the poor, right? Don't get so caught up in every cause. I mean, be involved in them for, to be sure but especially in the local assembly, find the real people who are orphaned, the people who are suffering, the people without needs, or who don't have their needs met, the people who are grieving, and love them and care for them. See, when it becomes tangible, that's when we want to exempt ourselves and just say, no, I I just want to have a general goodness for general people. I I find this a lot of times, people in my generation, I mean, that's the the science behind like virtue signaling. like, we want to let other people know we're good. We're on the right side. To exempt us from actually loving the real people that are hard to love in our lives. And think about what, what did Jesus condemn the Pharisees for? For wanting to appear righteous before men. That's a very dangerous thing. So we're called to think locally and to think practically who do we need to do good to? And you're not going to know that unless we're actually, what, around each other, and gathered together, and praying together, and singing together, and serving together. I think um, one of the biggest obstacles to discipleship, to growing in the fruit of goodness, it's not secular liberalism. For college students, oftentimes, it's homework. Students staying up late at night and they skip church. They do damage to their souls and they don't prioritize the local church. They don't prioritize gathering on Sundays. Or it could be work in general, you know, business, uh, crowding out your Sundays, being filled with all this activity and not gathering for the Lord. I remember hearing an old preacher say one of the biggest struggles he had were were people falsely pitting the family against the church. We can't do this because of our family thing. And he's like, they should be in competition. In fact, bringing your family to the local church and worshiping God is loving your family, right? I mean, isn't that what we want our kids to realize? That that, that the church is the place where we worship God and to disciple our kids in that? It's not against taking vacations, but Maybe when you take vacation, go find a local church and worship on that Sunday morning. What's the Sabbath for? What is the Lord's Day for? What is the rest that we're called to undertake? It is worshiping God. That's our rest. That's the rest. We devote this day to the Lord. And the byproduct of that is we really become what the Scripture says we are, a body interconnected, loving one another, and doing good to one another. But that's difficult. Consider the priorities in your life. Are there good things that are taking precedent over the greatest things? Often that can reveal the idols in our heart that we don't want to let go of. But again, God's commands are good. They're for us. They are wise and they're true. But we can't do good unless we prioritize. What do we mean? What are the greatest goods? What are the highest things to which we are to aspire to? I think scripture gives us that clear instruction. And all of this comes together in in what later on in Galatians, Paul calls fulfilling the law of Christ. When you pursue these practices of doing good, when you persevere in them, and when you prioritize whom you do good to, and you love real, tangible, actual people, this is fulfilling the law of Christ. I love that phrase, the law of Christ. Sometimes we think the gospel is like the law goes away. But no, what is the law of Christ? It is, it is embodying what the law of God is, which is what? Loving God and loving neighbor. So God wants us to manifest these attributes in our lives. That is the purpose of why we have the spirit of God, so that we become people who internalize the law and do it and do good to others. In modern psychology, this this is really interesting. One of the things people realize is if one of the best ways to change yourself is to start acting like who you want to be. Just start practicing that. Start doing that. If you want to be somebody who wakes up early in the morning, just start doing it. And I think as Christians, we have something greater. We're not just called to be who we aspire to be, but we're, we're called to be who we actually are. Who we actually are. And what do we sing? I'm a child of God, no longer a slave to fear. That's who you are. And the practices of our life and and the pursuit of doing good is simply living into the identity God has already given to us. And I hope this is an encouragement not to grow weary in doing good. I hope that you realize maybe we could be so much more than we are. That the power of the living God dwells in us. And maybe we're the ones who are hesitant to see all that God has. I mean, don't you want everything that God has for you? Don't you want to see him bear fruit in your life? He wants that in you more than you do. And by submitting to his word, submitting to the ways in which that happens, Who knows what fruit we could bear, what joy, what goodness, what peace could manifest in our lives. And imagine a church filled with people like that. That could change the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have given us your spirit to do good. We pray that you would help us not to grow weary, to trust that in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Or I think about Abraham and Moses who lived decades waiting on your promises to be fulfilled. All the saints in Hebrews 11 who saw your promises fulfilled from afar. We stand in that line, Lord. We don't always understand what you're doing, what you're bearing in our lives. But we know that if we keep going, you're going to prove yourself faithful. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Help us to do good to one another, to love one another, to not break the bond of peace of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that this word would apply directly to our hearts and transform us into the likeness of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.